everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I am your host, Keith Burkelhammer. And today I have the pleasure, I've got a very special guest here with us, Charles Delbake. And uh, hey, Charles, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Keith. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, and it is a, a true honor to have a reef-keeping legend uh, such as yourself on the show tonight. And, you know, for those of you that don't know, Charles is, a, is an author, and he was the... Also, and it's currently the uh, the curator. Let me get into this before I get into the uh, the good stuff about the reef keeping stuff. So he's currently the curator at the uh, Steinhardt Aquarium in San Francisco, California. And as I mentioned, he's a pioneer in the reef keeping hobby. This is a thrill for me. Um, but many of you probably know Charles for the revolutionary series of books that he co-authored with Julian Sprung called The Reef Aquarium. And there were three volumes. This is volume three. I couldn't uh, dig up the other two volumes. I know they're, they're somewhere in the house, and, and I have to go and, and find these. Oh, I think, I think I Charles, Charles has got them. Hello. <laughs> you, got uh, volumes, yeah. you got volumes one and two? Yeah, I do. I got them in English and German and French. There you go. That's volume two, right? That's volume one? Vo volume one. That's volume, volume two. two. Sweet. So yeah, if 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 anybody doesn't have the those three books, I highly recommend that you um, pick them up because they, like I mentioned, these these things are bibles. They really are hard to find now. Are they? Are yeah, they? they're all out of print. Um, just volume three is available as an ebook on uh, oh, iBooks. Wow. Yeah. So um, another interesting fact: Charles was also the driving force behind the first. Um, be behind organizing the first ever Magna in 1989, which was held in Toronto, which is where he lived. Charles was also an aquatic biologist at the Waikiki Aquarium. That sounded like one heck of a job. And uh, Charles, listen, I just really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and to, um, you know, to chat with us. This is just, this is awesome. Well, it's my pleasure, Keith. And uh, that's quite a generous uh, introduction. I don't <laughs> I could live up to that one. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, no. And so it's really, uh, it's an honor to be here. And, you know, this is uh, not a, a forum, uh, a media stream that I normally get involved with, like YouTube and online stuff. It's, I'm still kind of old school that way, I guess. But uh, yeah, this is, this is exciting. Well, I know, I know folks are really excited to have you on. And as always, um, you know, for the people that are tuning in here, just encourage you to, to ask Charles questions in the, uh, in the chat. And I see a bunch of uh, familiar faces tuning in again tonight for the uh, for the episode here. Before we start uh, chatting with Charles, I just want to thank the show's sponsor, Marine Depot. I really appreciate their support, being a supporter of the show. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the viewers, hey, with, without the uh, folks tuning in, there wouldn't be a show. So I really appreciate that. And spread the word about the show. Hit that like button so more people will find us tonight. But um, now that we've uh, taken care of some of this business, Charles, let's... Uh, Let's kind of dig into some stuff here. What, what's your background, Charles, in terms of reef keeping? How did you kind of get into this whole hobby? Oh, well, it's, it's a very long story. I'll try to, to give you the, the Coles Notes version here. Basically, I, I started in the hobby, well, basically keeping aquariums. And my dad started. He was, uh, he was really into fish tanks, and he had a small tank in the house. It was a freshwater tank, and that's how I got my, my first introduction to fishes. And then um, we, we was about... Me ten or eleven, I started uh, keeping uh, a brackish water tank. You know, we had scats and monos, and then we gradually changed that into salt. 
And then uh, I started going down to the Florida Keys in the summer with my parents uh, for about five or six days. And then we went up to St. Pete after that. And I started snorkeling uh, on the on the shoreline and then snorkeling on the reefs when I was 13, got certified when I was 14. I had a saltwater tank, I think, when I was about 12. Um, I used to collect fish down the Keys by hand and uh, bring them back in the car three days <laughs> with an air bubbler <laughs> and put them in my tank at home. And then I, uh, you know, in the seventies or so, it kind of slowed down. I was in high school, I had other interests, things like that. And then um, I, uh, back in the mid eighties, I started getting back into uh, to marine aquarium. And then I met George Smith in 1986, who was the author of a eight part series in Freshwater Marine Aquarium magazine, talking about this trickle filter and living reef uh, tanks in Holland. And so he came up to Toronto and spoke to our aquarium society. He was actually the first speaker at our first inaugural meeting mm. that we had. And we had 120 people there. Wow. Um, and that just started off in, in reef tanks. And then we, uh, about a year and a half later, I had a, we had John Burlinson from Burlinson, uh, JP Burlinson Incorporated mm -hmm. up. He was a manufacturer of trickle filters. And uh, we wanted to come up at the second, a second year after that. And he said, well, you know, I don't really have time, but I got this new uh, young kid working for me that I think would be good. And, uh, and I, so I said, okay, well, we'll have him come up. And uh, it turned out to be Julian Sprung. And so I met Julian and I volunteered to house, uh, host him at my place. And uh, we became fast friends and just kind of went onwards from there. Wow. Yeah. So, um, Folks, let me um, let, let, let's kind of like lay out the uh, I guess kind of the the plan of attack tonight with with Charles. So Charles, you you've uh, obviously you're uh, the curator at, at the Steinhardt Aquarium, and you were also you know the uh, a biologist at the uh, the Waikiki Aquarium. So certainly want to dig into kind of your experience working on the uh, the public aquarium side, and you also have a presentation about uh, the Steinhardt Aquarium that you'll uh, you'll take us through and. It's it's a, I guess it's a uh, an, an abbreviated version of that presentation, perhaps, but um, you know. So then once we get through that, we'll uh, we'll kind of dig into the reef keeping, you know, on the hobby side. And I I can already kind of see some questions popping up in the uh, in the chat for you. So we um, we hopefully will have time for for all these different questions. But Charles, talk to us about what it's like to to uh, tend to or, or manage let's say, um, an aquarium on the public aquarium side versus on the hobby side. I mean, they're, they're so much larger. It, they are, but uh, and, some, and some of them are actually smaller. So, you know, we have a wide range of, of you know, habitats that we maintain at Steinhardt, anywhere from five gallons up to, you know, the big reef tank, which is 212,000 gallons. So, they, you know, it all comes down to the same basics, though, which is basically lighting, water motion, and water chemistry, trying to maintain those. And so in a bigger system, in a way, you know, we've always been taught that the bigger the volume you have, the more stable it is. Uh, and that's true to a certain extent. The problem is that any changes you wanna make, either good or bad, they happen slowly. And mm -hmm. it's, we kind of uh, always use the analogy, it's like steering an oil tanker. Oh, there you know, you go. Small, little, small little tweaks in something can make a huge difference in the course that this thing takes but it takes a long time for you to see it. And then to make those corrective changes to bring it back on course, I'll then take longer as well. Um, but you know, it's, it's keeping the, the windows clean, um, you know, and making the animals healthy. It's all this pretty much the same stuff. It's just 
the I think what sets apart the public aquarium people is that yes, it's a full time job, and we have people here every day, all day long, working on the tanks. But they have more than one. Uh, they have more than two. They have more than four. They could have mm. up to fifteen to twenty tanks that they're looking after. So in a way, it's more challenging because you're having to split your time amongst these various habitats. And a lot of them, some are, you know, uh, some of my biologists have non-photosynthetic organisms, and they also have tanks with photosynthetic organisms. Mm. And some of them are looking after cygnathids and corals, um, or cephalopods in a coral tank, or they have freshwater tanks and, and saltwater tanks. So it's quite a range of things that they need to look after. And then on top of all that, they have all the departmental duties that they need to do and meetings to attend and uh, and the big tanks that we have at Steinhardt, we have what we call our iconic exhibits. And those are managed by teams of biologists. So everybody's on at least two teams. So in addition to their normal tanks and duties, they also have these two large exhibits mm. that they're also a team member of. So it's it's a lot of taxing stuff. So sometimes it's challenging to keep it at the level of quality that, that we want. Well, that's something that was instilled in me when I worked, started working for Bruce Carlson uh, and Ken Yates and Jerry Crow and uh, various other uh, supervisors that I had was, you know, people are paying money to come and see this stuff, right? So that's a big difference between a hobby tank and uh, your you know, home tank and, and the public aquarium tank is that people are paying money to see your tank. Right. So it's got to be up to snuff. So the big emphasis is before opening to get everything clean and ready. No spots on the window, no spots in the backdrops, you know, lights are on, everything's working, everything's humming along before people come in and, you know, spend money. How do, how do you, um, you know, manage a situation where something go wrong with a tank and, you know, you've got an algae outbreak or something where it's just not looking at its um, best? How, how do you how do you manage that with the public? Well, you uh, you do the best you can in terms of troubleshooting what's going on, and normally it's it's something that that sneaks up on you, right? I mean, it's not something that's uh, the next day. Uh, and those kinds of things that things that happen quickly are like when pumps go out or yeah. you know filters go out, uh, powers out, th those kinds of things that happen, or um, you know the the pump got left off and there was no water circulation, or a valve was closed, or a valve was opened and the tank got drained, or you know all these things have happened over you know the. 20 some years that I've been in this industry. So, but basically it's, it's troubleshooting. It's, there's a chain of command, you know, who do you notify? Who do you call first? Um, and then getting the more eyes on it, the better. I mean, you have lots of people there, lots of experience. So let's draw on that. and Let's all noodle it together and see if we can figure out what's going on. So Steinhardt is in San Francisco. You guys have earthquakes out there. How do you, how do you manage through some of those uh, tremors? With those kind of tanks, I mean, are well, they, are they yeah, kind of built to to stand up to that sort of thing? They are, um, you know, the two biggest exhibits. So we have actually three pretty large exhibits. We have the big reef, of course, but we also have a cold water uh, California coast exhibit that's ninety thousand gallons and a hundred and ten thousand gallon uh, Amazon exhibit. And the way that they built the building was that they they're sort of like on a cantilever; they're opposite ends of the building. So the idea is that they're supposed to balance each other out. Um, you know, we haven't, you know, knock on wood, we haven't had a major earthquake since I've lived here. You've had lots of small ones. Um, we have emergency, everything's on emergency power. You know, we have generators, you know, that are that are fueled up and ready to go. So we can go several days without power. Um, so we can withstand that kind of an outage. And we've had to rely on that several times. And they get tested all the time. We have earthquake drills. We have all kinds of safety drills. Um, so there's lots of different things that... Uh, 
you know, that we prepare for that. But, you know, thankfully we haven't had to deal with something large like that. But, you know, a lot of the exhibits are bolted to the ground. They're uh, mm. bolted to stands. The stands are bolted to the wall. So there's netting up over storage rooms. You know, so there's things that are all things that can fall down or are, are secured in place. Uh, we don't let people, the biologists or anybody, you know, store things high up overhead. So there's lots of precautions that are taken. Well, I tell you, it, in, in terms of just uh, reef keeping in general, I've always found over the years that it's um, really, really good to be prepared. You know, I have not only one, but two generators in case we lose the power here in Vermont. I mean, I don't have to worry about earthquakes or anything like that, but, um, you know, we have a full house backup generator. And then I also have a portable generator in case that full backup uh, generator does not work. And actually, I did have a full backup generator when we lived in Connecticut before um, Superstorm Sandy hit. And that generator did fail. So, you know, it's always good to kind of have redundancy and, and have some sort of plan in place. But I'm sure like with a public aquarium, you guys really have to think about pretty much every possible scenario. You know, and, and uh, I have to say that actually the, the earthquake that I did experience was in Hawaii. Oh. In 2007, there was a big earthquake off the Big Island. And uh, that tripped off uh, one of the power plants in uh, Honolulu. And the way that their system is designed, their electrical grid, is that one plant goes down, they all go down as a safety precaution because they can't handle the load by themselves. And so it took them, we didn't have power for 14, 15 hours. Oh, and wow. Because they then had to start one plant at a time very slowly and ramp up slowly and everybody had to turn everything off. And so we were running off a backup generator that didn't have enough fuel and we had to go to the... Uh, I had to drive to the fire station with the with the state truck and big drums and have them fill it up with fuel Oof. and then drive it back to the uh, to the aquarium and hook that up to the generator. Wow! So that was that was the, my biggest uh, experience with an earthquake. I wasn't in San Francisco, funny enough. <laughs> well, again, knock on wood there. So, Charles, you um, you mentioned some of the uh, exhibits that you manage. Which which uh, what what exhibits would you say are the the toughest to manage at Steinhardt? most challenging perhaps well you know it's they all have their challenges you know and, and they all have different challenges let's put it that way uh, some it's uh, keeping the, the animals healthy uh, in other cases it's keeping the exhibits stocked with some of the animals for example cephalopods have a limited lifespan so you have to make sure you've got a backup animal or you have an, uh, access to a source some of those things are seasonal so it's hard to get them um, I think it's been challenging for us to maintain our, especially with COVID, um, you know, obviously there's no travel. And so our Twilight Zone exhibit is stocked mainly with animals that our, our rebreather diving team collects. And as a result, you know, they haven't been out in the field for over a year and a half mm. collecting for, for the exhibit. So it's been challenging to keep those stocked. Um, and also with uh, just getting, even just purchasing from wholesalers, it's been challenging because of the limited supply. Uh, but I would think, you know, the big reef tank obviously is probably the most challenging from my from my perspective, because, um, as I said, you know, uh, even bad things hope happen slowly and it takes a lot to correct it. And the problem is there's so many different variables um, that can be a cause of that. And a lot of it's synergistic, you know, where there's a number of different things that are going on. So that's been a, you know, over the 12 years that I've been managing and working on that system, that's been by far the most challenging. We've had periods of ups and downs where everything's, you know, it's no different than a home tank, I think, for many people, is that things are just rocking along, everything's growing, doing well, and all of a sudden you start losing stuff, and you don't know why. 
you know, things start yeah. bleaching out, you start losing, you get RTN, you get parasite issues. Um, things are just losing color, or lightening up. I mean, it's just all kinds of weird stuff. And then as we all do, I mean, you just basically just throw everything you can at it and eventually it turns around. But then the problem is you don't really know what is it that you did that solved the problem. Right. You're so trying multiple things at once. Exactly. Exactly. So, Charles, is this a good time to um, to play the slideshow and maybe you can kind of talk about the big reef tank? Would uh, sure. this be an appropriate yeah, time to do that? So um, I'm starting Sounds to roll good. it. I'm starting to roll it. So you should probably um, see the first um, slide in about 15 seconds on YouTube there. And and uh, yeah, folks. So Charles is just going to kind of take us through a presentation of this is the uh, the large reef aquarium exhibit, I believe, right? Yeah, most of it's on that. It's uh, photos that we've taken. Um, some of them are about three years old, and most of them are in the last. Just were taken this month. And uh, a couple, just a couple of pictures of our Twilight Zone exhibit, which I features uh, to a pair of fish that we have that we collected ourselves. So basically, um, that's me. And the uh, all the photos in here are copyright, by the way, of California Academy of Sciences. And this is the shallow portions of our tank. Um, this is a photo that was taken a couple of years ago with tridacna clams, anemones, heteractus, and tecmea. Um, this is some of the carpet anemones that we have. There's a blue carpet. We also have uh, this next one is a sort of orangish reddish carpet. It's kind of cool. Beautiful. Uh, we do have some clownfish in there, but not a lot. Uh, we want to get maybe some saddlebacks. They like to live in this type of anemone. We also are looking at putting an underwater camera in, and this is uh, basically the location it would be in. So you can see the fish. The tank, yeah, the deepest is maybe about two feet. Um, so we're just looking at getting a new camera. This is our second smallest viewing window. This We call this the Buddha window because it's kind of shaped like a Buddha's belly. Mm -hmm. This was taken about three years ago when things were really rocking in there. Uh, these are more recent photos just taken this month. And so there you can see the diver on the left and some of the acropper. Um, so we lost a lot of our acropper, a lot of our montipara over the, over the, since COVID, and things are coming back. The big coral you see in the middle there, that's um, a um, hiddenophora. That one has gone through boom and bust. Right now it's in a boom phase. You can see it's overgrowing everything. Um, some of our acropora is starting to uh, come back, bounce back, and color up again nicely. And there's a close-up of some of the branches of it coming up there. So really happy with that. That window basically uh, features most of the acropora that we have on the exhibit in the exhibit. And that was by design. We wanted to light that area pretty heavily. The tank is lit with 76 1,000-watt metal halides. Wow. Uh, they're uh, 10K and 14K. They're all Hamilton's. And uh, we just in the midst of a, a bulb change out, we've got two thirds of the bulbs changed out right now. We change them out every six to eight months. Mm. We also have uh, some LEDs that we're working with. Uh, we have a Kessel A2000 and we're just trialing. But then we have some small eco exotic uh, cannons, the blues, just for effect to give a little bit more punch to the tank and also for uh, evening events. So the lights, those lights stay on till about 10 or 11 o'clock, whereas the metal halides go off at uh, by six. Couple of big uh, Stichlodactyla hadnai uh, anemones with uh, parapericulas in there. Those those were actually a donation from a hobbyist down in uh, Monterey area. Mm. Again, this is still all the Buddha window. So these are corals that die back and now coming back again, especially the turban area. And some of these leather corals are starting to open up again. And we're also getting a lot of recruitment. Uh, of uh, Pasopora damicornis, you know, as most people know, it's a planulator. 
This is the main exhibit window tank uh, photo I took a few years ago. All that coral on the right there, unfortunately, we lost that to brown jelly during COVID. Uh, but it's we're starting to put new pieces in there, and it's starting to grow back. This is another uh, hidden ophra that's uh, just under our walkway. It's about two feet of water. Some leather corals and some uh, montipra. Lots of urchins in there, lots of snails. Um, so some of these, this is a coral that we've had since day one, so it's been in there for 13 years. It's leptastria. Some blue linkia sea stars for, you know, detritivores for cleaning up. So some of the uh, larger polyps, you know, the LPS corals are doing pretty well. They seem to be the hardiest for us. You know, the thick-tissued ones seem to be the best in terms of survival. And this is now on the top edge of the main window. Um, when you, we actually, the whole tank is viewable from the top. Um, so there's a walkway around it, some uh, turbinaria peltata, some small frags are starting to grow and encrust again. So we have a lot of surface area. There's some, uh, some blue coral, some heliopora. There's a uh, romphella, soft coral. Sorry, it's a gorgonian. Uh, not a romphella, there's another gorgonian. Some more um, montipra that's growing out. Mm -hmm. So we've added some new pieces too that we've grown uh, behind the scenes and they're starting to, they're growing really well. They're showing growth edges. Same with this montipra. This is some, actually some frags from um, ORA. Yeah. We bought aquaculture pieces. Yeah. Same with this one, another Montipra. And uh, Euphilia is doing really well for us. We always had problems with Euphilia, but we also had angelfish and some other fish in there that we since removed over the, over the years. And this is one of the corals that's done really well. Um, some Lobophilia. These are all bouncing back uh, after some of the events that we had over the last year, some of the challenges we faced. Bubble corals are coming back again, looking really good. So it's a, it's a huge tank. There's a lot of surface area, so it's challenging. When we lose a lot of coral, it really shows. But some stuff's growing. So this is up in the top left here. You see a patch of fire coral from August 2018, and this is what it looks like now. Mm. So it's completely covered that pinnacle. So we maintain it by, we have a, a bead of um, epoxy around the edges of it. So when it grows over that, we peel that back. Uh, we have fungi that's reproducing. So these are anthocoli that are growing off the skeleton of a, of a fungi. So those will break off and spread. Um, like I mentioned, the Possipora damicornis is just self-planulating and seeding all over the tank. When we had that about nine years ago, we had that. And then we had a big die-off where we lost most of it. This is a... Uh, Fauvid coral. It's in August 2020. Very lightened up. We didn't know what was wrong with it. Uh, we made some adjustments, and now it's growing, looking better again, um, less than a year later. So there's still a little bit of a lightness on there. Um, another thing that we've had some issues with is uh, Montipra. So you see this Montipra capricornis. Um, it's uh, it's got that brown in the middle, and it's just orange on the edges. And so these are colonies that were all orange, and then got that brown in the middle. And I've talked to other Aquarists that have also exhibited that, no one really has an explanation for it other than it might be lighting related. So I'd be interested to hear if anybody's got some thoughts on that. Hmm. And then this is our, our one of our newer exhibits that opened in 2016 called the Twilight Zone, which features fish and uh, invertebrates that were collected from uh, between 300 and 500 feet. And these are the crown jewels of that exhibit. It's a pair of uh, peppermint angels that we've had for about almost two years now. 
Do they, uh, and I'm assuming they're pretty decent citizens in terms of uh, not nipping at corals, or do they uh, take a peck? They're by themselves. There are no other fish with oh, them. Okay. Um, there are some, um, there's some stereonephthia, there's some uh, scleronephthia, some dendronephthia in there with them. Uh, they seem to be okay with it. Um, sometimes a little bit of picking going on. So we're experimenting to see what, you know, how well they do with, with those kinds of fish. But um, they're in a tank that's, uh, dedicated just to them it's not very big the, the fish are tiny i mean they came in i think the smallest one was maybe an inch oh wow um, they, they were collected uh, fairly small Gordon. those were collected under permit um, by our deep diving team in tahiti yeah you just don't really see those at all in the hobby anymore i mean it's very tough to uh to get and if you can get one they're super expensive from what i understand the last one I saw offered was on Divers Den. I think they were asking twenty to or twenty five thousand yeah. dollars for it. Wow. You gotta know what you're yep. doing if you're gonna uh, be plunking down that, that kind of cash for a fish, that's for sure. Yeah, it's they're like I said, we've had these now for you know, we had them in holding in Tahiti for almost two months. Um, they were eating fine there and then we brought them back and they're eating fine here as well. So um, you know, we feed them, you know, frozen Hakari mices, we live mices, uh, copepods. Uh, live adult copepods. We don't clean the backdrops as much as we do in the other ones because a lot of little copepods, hapractacoid copepods, colonize that. We see them picking that, those things. So this tank, it's like you might say maybe it's a little dirty compared to some of the other exhibits, but we do that on purpose because we want to give them the widest choice of foods to feed off yep. them. So, so Charles, yep. um, I got a bunch of questions, and I'm seeing some questions coming up here in the chat. And um, Alex Correa is, sure. is asking, you know, Charles, could you please let us know about the additives for such a huge tank? Do you use Kalkwasser, calcium reactor? What are you What are you guys using for calcium and alkalinity supplementation? Great question, Alex. For people who don't know Alex, Alex was one of my volunteers at Waikiki Aquarium. Oh. So he's been volunteering at the Waikiki Aquarium for over 20 years, I believe. Wow. And he's he's a self-confessed coral nut. So anyway, living in Hawaii is challenging, as you can imagine. So Alex actually built his own rock work, and he's collected his zoanthids, which are, are legal to collect in Hawaii, but you can't collect stony corals, can't collect live rock. So he's created his own exhibits. Really quite nice. You should feature him sometime. It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, we we don't use Kalkwasser anymore. Um, we use mainly uh, calcium reactors. Um, we found that the alkalinity was climbing a little bit too much with the Kalkwasser, but now and then we'll we'll play with it, add it back again. Uh, we do add uh, manganese and iron. So we have an iron citrate and manganese sulfate, I believe it is, a combination solution that we mix ourselves. Um, we also add uh, potassium iodide to the tank. Uh, we use activated carbon. We have been using lanthanum chloride um, to keep the phosphates low. Um, by low, I mean around 0 0.06 to 0 0.1 in that range, 0.12. What we found, though, is that during COVID, you know, everything got shut down. So we didn't have any visitors and we didn't do any dive shows. And there was a number of feeds that occurred during the dive shows. And one of the things we found, I found was that the phosphate levels start dropping lower than we normally would run them. And the nitrates, our nitrates run uh, around 15 parts per million nitrate. Mm. And um, so our coral started to get lighter in color. Even, and even, at, 15, seen that the, even at 15 parts per million, they're getting light. Yes, mm. because the phosphate was dropping. Oh. So the phosphate was becoming the limiting nutrient. They had lots of nitrogen, but they didn't, they couldn't. Uh, suck up enough phosphate to use that nitrogen. So 
basically what we stopped doing is adding lanthanum chloride and slowly let the phosphate levels climb back up a little bit higher. Um, we use um, GFO in two small reactors as well. And in the past, we've used Cooper'sorb. Um, we also, we don't add strontium because our mix, we mix, actually make our own saltwater mix. So we make our own salt mix. We add all the components and we make it, mix it ourselves. And those components usually have some strontium as a, as a contaminant, so to speak, in that. So we found um, through Triton testing and also testing through the San Francisco uh, Public Department, um, uh, Public Works Department, that our, our strontium was a little on the high side. So we stopped adding it to our mix. And that's pretty much all we add. What, uh, what kind of pH does that uh, tank normally run at in terms of the range? Um, it runs around 8.2, hmm. 8.1 to 8.3 in that range. Uh, we actually, um, so because it's such a large system and there's such large pumps running it, we have what's called a degas tower. So think of it as a, as a large giant trickle filter that has some media in it. And the idea there is the water from the sand filters and from the fractionators mix there and they cascade down and they blow off any excess um, nitrogen gas so we don't get any saturation issues and the problem with that is that that's located in the same room as the fractionators and so we get a lot of salt and crustacean salt in the air so we've played around with covering that that tower the top of it and letting some of the air out and when we do that the ph goes down hmm. so we've taken the covers off a couple you know three or four years ago and you know of course our ph went up like 0 0.1 0 0.2 um, and that so it runs around there so that's why you guys are not uh, don't need to be um, supplementing with the cockwasser is because the pH is already kind of like where yeah where. it's it's pretty much where we want it. Um, also, you know, the cockwasser has other benefits. You know, it adds um, some alkalinity, but it also adds some calcium, and it also will precipitate some phosphate out. But you know, really, right now we don't seem to need it. How um how often are you guys doing like ICP tests on on that tank? Is that something that you need to do like on a weekly basis, or do you not um, fret too much? No. Stuff? Yeah, we don't worry too much about it. We usually test it when we start seeing issues. We 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 send it out for ICP analysis, and you know not not to disparage any of the companies doing that, but you know we've had instances where we've sent the same water sample from the same tank, taken at the same time to different companies and gotten back completely different results. So it's really, you know, it's it's challenging to know what numbers to believe. So we have also for several years sent money water to the San Francisco um, Water Department for them to analyze it. And we've also done some ICP analysis, mainly when we start seeing issues. But I think we would like to go to maybe doing it every month or so just to see how things are, are tracking. Um, and we also have our own water chemistry lab, but we're limited in terms of like what we can measure. And, you know, we can't measure iodine levels or, um, you know, some of these more esoteric things that ICP can tell you. But, you know, I have a, my own thoughts on the usefulness of ICP, but we'll save that for some other time. Well, I was going to ask you that this is like, up there, you know, in, in terms of recent years with reef keeping, there's just so much information available to us hobbyists in terms of, um, you know, looking at the data and potentially making course corrections based on that data. And sometimes, you know, the way I feel it's, it's, it's almost like too much information at your disposal and um, you're, you're trying to get too fine and you're trying to make too many changes at once. Um, you know, I almost, you kinda... know, and I think there's, there's also a term, I know I heard Rich Ross mention this on one of his magna talk last year about confirmation bias, right? 
So you get a number and you go, oh, that's a nice number. I like that number. So therefore you trust it. Hmm. But when it's not the right number, then you're like, oh, well, that can't be the right number. That's something wrong with the test, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's like you say, there's so much information. And it's the bottom line has always been for me is what are the animals telling you? You know, what do you see? Do you see something different? Is there, are there, is the color changing? Is it, they're not opening as much? Um, are they not growing as quickly? Is this, is the growth slowing? Are they losing tissue? I mean, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can, you know, gauge how well the tank's doing. Um, I mean, I've talked to, uh, you know, and Rich has talked about this in the past as well, written articles about it. And, you know, I talked with colleagues at the International Aquarium Conference a few years ago in Vancouver from Europe and other countries about phosphate and nitrate. You know, what are they running their tanks at? And some of them are running their coral tanks at two parts per million phosphate, you know, mm-hmm. and, not, and not having seen any issues. Um, and I wrote an article about that, and I think I had a presentation about it too I've given in the past on, you know, on that whole philosophy of, of you know, sure, I mean, we can get some of these things to grow really well, but the real test is really, are they reproductive? You know, are they are they putting energy into making gametes and those kinds of things? To, to me, that's really, you know, that's known as the fitness level of an organism. You know, if it's fit, it's going to be putting energy into gametes, not just into growth. And do we really see that in some of these tanks? And now that people are becoming more aware of the possibility of sexually, you know, spawning their corals in captivity, uh, more people are like starting to look at, you know, gamete production by breaking off branches and seeing if there's eggs in there, that sort of thing. And I think that's another a new direction that we're moving in that will give us even inform us better about, you know, are we giving them the right environment in terms of the nutrients and, and feeds and those kinds of things. So you mentioned that, you know, the tank there is uh, generally at 15 part per million in terms of the nitrate and, and the phosphate, keep it in the uh, the 0.06 to, to 0.1 range. You know, at one point in time, there was this whole movement in terms of these ultra low nutrient systems. And, you know, things have kind of moved away from that in, in terms of the, the hobby. But um, when you look at natural seawater and and the, uh, the level for nitrate, at um, natural seawater levels is like a 0.01 or 0.02, something in, in that realm. How It's even lower than it's that. Even, it's point, add some more zeros to that. Add more zeros to that. So yeah. why, 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 do you, why is it, um, you know, do you think it's it's best to, to not, or, you know, is, is it okay in certain circumstances to run a tank with those very low nitrate levels um, that mimic natural seawater? Or is it a matter of having, you know, some sort of setup where it's, you know, high import, high export, and you know you're you're pulling out what you're what you're putting in. It's a very complicated uh, puzzle, Keith, um, because there are so many variables in our little glass boxes that don't match what is in the ocean. And you know, I've I've argued with people over the last you know over the decades basically about you know these are not this is not the ocean. So if you're going to try to replicate one aspect of the ocean. Well, what about all the others that you're not replicating? How is that? that you know, it's, it's a balance. So if you look at a coral reef, sure, the, it's the, the levels that are in the water are low, but it doesn't mean that those corals aren't getting those nutrients from somewhere. The reason it's low is because they're sucking it up as fast as it's being produced. Right. So you have to have some kind of a nutrient input. Um, and there's just there's so many different ways that corals can absorb nutrients, uh, either by ingesting them or by, you know, penocytosis, by taking it from the water. Uh, there's there's just so many ways that they get this nutrition that they can use to grow and also to to reproduce that it's 
to replicate that in our tanks is challenging. And I think, you know, in the early days, I mean, I remember when we were doing volume three, you know, and looking at some people's tanks and, and we have photos of some of these tanks in that book where, and I, and I saw the tanks and I, after leaving, I was talking to the friend of mine that, that, that when we were driving away, I said, you know, those tanks, those corals really remind me of a bleached coral reef because all these light pastel of pinks and yellows and mauves are what you see on a bleached coral that's lost most of its zooxanthellae. And if you look at photos um, online of, of coral reefs that were bleached by Bruce Carlson, for example, it's exactly what those corals look like. And I remember when they had the big uh, bleaching event in 1998 in Palau and Fiji, um, that, that global warming period that we had of global uh, bleaching, I mean, they were selling corals at wholesalers as ultra this, ultra that, because they were all bleached out and they were mm. bright yellow and purple and pink. It's, you know, anyway, um, I think I'm going off track here, but I think you can run an ultra low nutrient system, but you have to be producing nutrients for the, the coral. So ultra low nutrient doesn't mean that it's low nutrient for the animals. The water's low nutrient, but the animals are still trying to get that nutrition from somewhere. And you've got to provide it in whatever form that is. And, and you know, I see, I have a, a very cl a close friend of mine who's the curator at the uh, Burgers Ocean at the Burgers Zoo in Arnhem in the Netherlands. He manages a 180,000-gallon live coral tank. And he has to add, um, what was it? he's adding sodium nitrate to the tank because he can't get his nitrate levels up because it gets sucked out so fast. Yeah, that's actually been an issue with my 187-gallon tank. Uh, it's, it's very SPS-heavy, uh, dominant. And, um, I had, I, well, I'm currently dosing two part on that tank and I'm switching over to a calcium reactor, but that tank just sucks up the nitrate and the phosphate to the point where I am dosing nitrate and phosphate. In fact, I stopped dosing nitrate a couple of weeks ago and, um, you know, I had nitrate levels in the 2.5 to five, uh, part per million range. And my phosphate was, um, you know, in the 0.03 to 0.07 type of range. And when I stopped dosing, I just decided, all right, I'm going to start feeding more in terms of, um, you know, feeding the fish more heavily. That did not do it. I mean, my, uh, my nitrates and phosphates just got down to close to zero. So I started back to dosing because I just couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. You know, and the other thing to remember is that, you know, most people are keeping their calcium and alkalinity and magnesium levels much higher than the ocean. Right. You know, and that's driving calcification. And, and, and there, as a result of that, these corals are trying to grow. Their skeletons are growing, but the tissue has a hard time keeping up if they don't have enough nutrients. And so that's why you see, you know, tissue loss and you see, you know, these bleaching corals or the white tips on the corals is that they just can't, you know, generate the tissue at a rate to keep up with the skeletal growth. So if they're going to run ultra low nutrients, then, you know, the alkalinity should be, you know, a DKH of like seven or eight at the highest. And your right. calcium should be like maybe 410, right. 400. So what do, what do you guys do there at, at um, you know, for the large reef tank in, in terms of, of feeding and additives, what uh, trace elements, what, what do you do in terms of trying to, um, you know, keep, keep the corals happy in terms of food and, and what have you? Well, in terms of food, we, uh, we add uh, ROE, you know, the uh, fish egg supplements. We add, um, Hikari mices, we add um, Piscean Energetics mices, we add um, concentrated rotifers, 
Uh, we add, let's see, what else do we add? We add some oyster fees, some phyto feast. I mean, there's a mixture of things that we add. Um, shout out to Reed Mariculture, mm. without whose support we would never be able to do this because <laughs> they're, you know, donating a lot of that to yeah, us. Yeah, I'd say you uh, guys probably no need a that. large quantities of that stuff, right? Yeah, we've gone we've gone through different ways in terms of. Um, feeding the tank at one point we uh, we made a zone feeder what we call our zone feed so we actually we have five huge return lines into the tank and that go out in different places and we cut into one of those and we were injecting food and letting it blow all over the tank but that was basically the shear forces and they were so great i mean that's water coming from uh three 40 horsepower pumps that's going through those lines uh, for just recirculation so they was breaking everything apart um so we started, and then we also had a you know, auto feeder that we were dosing. Uh, also, live live baby brine we dose. We feed that out every day, tons of it. Um, and so we have auto dosers that are on peristaltic pumps that inject that food into different uh, water streams, so it spreads around the tank, keep the antheus up swimming around. So we do a lot of those kinds of additions. And then in terms of main feeds, we feed you know chopped clam, chopped shrimp. Uh, chopped squid. Um, we have gel diet that are, are herbivores. We have we put big heads of romaine lettuce in there on uh, plastic chains that we had in there for the tangs. Wow. We had um, we had lava as well. The freeze dried uh, seaweed, big huge you know sheets of it. So yeah, and I, I you know I must also just want to recognize like some of the people that have worked on this. It's not just me. Um, you know, we've had Rich Ross managing that tank for many years, Matt Wandell, um, a number of other people uh, that are still there, Nick Yim, um, you know, Alan Jan. We've got uh, Lisa Larkin now is working with us. She's managing that exhibit from Long Beach Aquarium. We hired her back in July. Um, just a, a plethora of people, you know, that have put a lot of heart and soul into that tank and agonized over that tank for many many years i mean it's now it was first animals went in there in january of 2008 wow so um i've got some more questions but folks i i certainly encourage you to uh to ask charles some questions um about the tank and about reef keeping in general in the, in the chat so you mentioned charles that you have 76 1000 watt metal halides on that exhibit yeah. What um, What do you think the future holds? And I know this is probably a question Alex would uh, like to chime in on in terms of the, the future of metal halides. How um, How much longer do you think the uh, the technology will be available in terms of being able to find replacement bulbs? Five years? That long? Maybe. Maybe five. Maybe ten. Um, you know, it's it's being left up to you know some of the independent companies to try and scrounge these bulbs together like i know that one of the issues that we ran up to pretty quickly was uh, ushio stopped producing their 10,000 k a thousand watt metal halide that hit a lot of us um luckily hamilton's still supplying those um you know we would love to go over to leds but there are a number of issues with leds for us uh, because the sheer size of the units for one uh, right. and the weight you know, for us to, to, you know, support those on over the tank is going to be very challenging. They just don't have the punch of a metal halide yet. Um, they're getting better. Uh, we've done a bunch of measurements, uh, dry, you know, through air um, and looking at the Kessel, the max spec, um, they can get close to a thousand watt metal halide, depending on what reflector we use on the metal halide, whether it's a wide or a narrow or a medium reflector. Um, but they drop off quickly on the sides. 
But uh, you know, the other biggest issue I think for us is we can't just swap out a bulb if they fail. You know, we have to swap out the entire unit. So right. I think for us, really, the, the, what we're really looking for are these module units hmm. where we can swap out a, you know, a section of the LEDs instead of having to replace the entire fixture. Right. Uh, I think the, the real breakthrough is going to come when they can you know, improve the electronics and the heat dissipation so that they don't have to be these huge, heavy, bulky things. Uh, that's really going to help. A friend of mine, uh, again, the, the fellow that's in Holland, He's been trying out several uh, LED lights and uh, max spec included. And what he's found is that they do lose intensity over time. They don't maintain their intensity. Uh, so there is a drop off. Um, what we don't know is, you know, how great of a drop off is it? Does it continue to drop off or does it level off? You know, with metal halides, you'll get an initial drop and then they level off pretty good, maintain their intensity for a pretty long time. Um, the reason why we switch ours out after six or eight months is because the gap, you know, the mixture of rare earth elements that they put in these bulbs to get the spectrums that we need, uh, the blue ones are quite uh, unstable. So they're the ones that go first, and mm. that's why you see these drops in the blue output. So it's interesting. Um, you know, the other thing I've heard from LED manufacturers is it's not intensity that's important; it's the spectrum, and that when we measure LED, you know, power out of LEDs against metal halides, it's not really a it's apples and oranges because the LEDs are concentrating most of their energy into the blues and reds areas for photosynthesis, whereas the metal halides are covering a wider spectrum of, of light um, of light wavelengths. And so you're measuring the PARs, measuring those where the LEDs don't have as much of that in their in their uh, spectra. So you know it's challenging. Yeah, when I had um, Sanjay Yoshi on the show last uh, November, he, he essentially said that, um, you know, he talked about the blue light versus the full spectrum, just in LEDs. And, and he said that he runs his LEDs on full spectrum because he just feels like he's going to get much better growth with the uh, full spectrum, you know, profile in LEDs versus a, a more blue profile, which is what a lot of people are running. And, you know, the uh, reason being that there's, um, you know, when you're running those blue lights, you can really see the fluorescence of the uh, of the corals pop. So that's that's kind of like been a change, I guess, um, versus when. Right. And we have uh, we have the uh, I guess the UPR tech spectrometer um, that's available to handheld unit. Um, and when we do the spectrum on the LEDs and adjust, you know, the spectrum, the blue doesn't change at all. All your all that's being pumped up is the yellows and, and reds and oranges and that's what's that's what we see the increase in the uh, in the spectrum. The blues stay rock solid. Mm. That output doesn't change when you adjust it. All you're doing by di changing the spectrum is dialing down the other colors. Right. So the amount of blue is there, um, which the corals need. Um, and I, you know, one of the, my concerns is we have you know uh, tridacna clams, you know, and we know that they love intensity. And so whether they're how well they're going to do under some of these metal highlights is, remains to be seen. And I think, again, the, the problem is our tank at the deepest is 24 feet. And wow. you're not going to get, you know, yeah. we get a par now with our metal halides of about 150 at the bottom. And I, I don't know that metal, that LEDs can do that yet. They're just they're just too big right now. And the other, the, we've got a big giant unit that we got from um, Hubble Lighting. It's meant for stadiums. And the color temperature is only 5,000 Kelvin because that's for broadcast. So the industry, you know, the, the, the market is so small for aquariums, for these big companies to then churn out a light that's, say, 10,000 Kelvin. I don't know that the incentive is there yet. 
because they're basically just looking at lighting stadiums and parking lots and warehouses, <laughs> not aquariums. So we have um, we have a couple of folks that are watching, Alex being one of them that uh, are big metal halide fans. Chris Meckley. Hey, Chris, what's up from ACI Aquaculture is a um, is a big metal halide uh, person. In fact, I believe he's hoarding uh, metal halide bulbs to uh, to make sure that he's not uh, left out in the cold when when that uh, dark day does happen when you can't find him. But um you know, he, he he highlights in his comment, um, you guys change out those bulbs every six to eight months. Is that because they're being yeah. overdriven or do you just feel, um, you know, what kind of, I guess the question, my question would be to you is what kind of ballast are you running them on? Is it just a, a switchable electronic ballast? So we have uh, the original ballast for, you know, um, the magnetic, magnetic ballast. Okay. Yeah, but... The, we've now switched over, I would say, half of those lighting to a electronic ballast that's adjustable. So we can run them at 600, 750, 1,000, and 1,200 watts. Mm. So not all the bulbs are running at 1,000. Excuse me. Not all the bulbs are running at 1,000 watts. A lot of them are only running at 750. But what I do see is, you know, like in our shallows area, those first pictures I showed, we just finished changing out the bulbs on those, and they're all running at 1,000 watts. And you can really see the difference. It's much brighter there now. And they and our Heteractus Magnifica are just twice the size they were before. So for me, it's it's a drop in intensity, but it's also a shift in spectrum. What I'd love to be able to do is to, you know, every month to go in there and measure that spectrum and measure the intensity. Now we have that spectrometer, we could probably do that and see how much it really is changing. But because, you know, some of those bulbs are trying to punch down through 24 feet of water, you know, it doesn't take much of a drop in intensity to really be noticeable at the bottom. Yeah, Alex is saying that um, Hamilton has no plans to stop production. Radium is also on and has no plans to stop production. I, I, I'm a big fan of the 400-watt um, 20K radium bulbs. I've been using those for years and years and years. And Yeah, I used those uh, 1995, you know, Waikiki. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? There's nothing better in terms of that look on the metal halide bulb. I use the metal halides and the T5 uh, combination, but um, I started a new 225 gallon peninsula tank. And this is the first time in my uh, nearly 30 years in reef keeping that I'm, I'm using LEDs. And, um, you know, so far so good. I've got a lot of LEDs over the tank, but the tank is also um, only 20 inches tall. So, yeah. I, yeah. That makes a big difference. Uh, you know, I think yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that you can grow corals under LEDs. You know, it's, Really, it's, it's what you're looking for. You know, what effect are you looking for? What, what's your main goal in keeping that tank? And, and will the LEDs meet that or not? Um, the other thing that I found with some of the LED manufacturers, because of the density of the LED matrix, the, the glitter lines are just insane. Mm. And for some of our tanks, you know, we've got surface agitation. It's like a strobe is on the tank. Yeah, it's beautiful. And for animal, for animal, well, it is, but for animal health and welfare, we have concerns. Mm. Uh, especially with cephalopods because of their eyes, you know, they they see as well as we do, you know, is it stressing them out? Is it affecting them? You know, I think the jury's still out on that. Whereas with metal halides, you can, you know, the glitter lines are there, but they're nowhere near as intense as they have where some of the metal halide manufacturers, the way that they're making those, sorry, the LED manufacturers, the way that the LEDs are arranged. Um, they're very closely packed together and that really makes these really intense Clear lines, which you can kind of with a diffuser, you can knock that back a bit. But it's something that my boss has pointed out several times as a concern. 
Right. I, you know, I don't even know how you guys would manage that switch at this point in time. It, it, it seems like it would be daunting in terms of trying to do that. I mean, how, how would you manage a transition from metal halides to LEDs? I mean, what, what, would it just really have to do a serious ramp down and then ramp up slowly in terms of acclimation? Yeah, I have no idea. I, know. I mean, we, we run LEDs on a lot of our small tanks, you know, and very few of our, our smaller tanks. And when I say small, I'm saying from, you know, five, 10,000 gallons down to, you know, like I said, five or eight gallons. A lot of those are now on LEDs. All our Twilight Zone tanks are on LEDs. But I did put, you know, had the biologists put translucent material on the tank covers because you don't get glitter lines at 400 feet. Right. So I don't want that. And they don't need to be that bright. Um, we are using radions uh, because I like the fact that they have a diffuser. And we also have Kessels on a lot of our, those are the two main ones that we're being using right now. Uh, we do have a couple of max specs on a four, 4,000 gallon um, Caribbean live coral exhibit. Uh, we're transitioning that to a shallow mesophotic exhibit to highlight coral um, from Curacao that one of our researchers is working on from 150 to like a 200 feet, that range is what that habitat is ultimately going to be. So we like the fact that with the LEDs, we could tune it to make it a little bit bluer, but so far the Gorgonians in there are still doing fine. We still have, we do have, a, I think one metal halide still on the tank. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens, but I know in, when I was in Vancouver again at the International Aquarium Congress, which I think was about three years ago, four years ago, uh, we had a roundtable discussion with other public aquarium people that had large coral tanks talking about the scarcity and the metal highlights and what are we going to do about it. And everyone was still kind of scratching their heads on, you know, how are we going to handle this? And everyone's asking, well, where did you get your bulbs? Who's got bulbs? And, yeah. <laughs> Ask Chris Meckley from ACI Aquaculture. He, he can get... Okay, Chris. He, he can get... Uh... Send me an email. <laughs> um, yeah, he's got a big stash of them someplace. So... Um, you mentioned something, Charles. Let, let, I wanted to pivot a little bit here and um, you know, go back to calcium and alkalinity supplementation and, and you guys sure. using a calcium reactor for that without uh, Kalkwasser. Um, I've heard both things in terms of whether a second chamber in a calcium reactor is effective in terms of helping to absorb the excess CO2. What, what, what are your thoughts in terms of having that second chamber in a calcium reactor? Will it help lower the pH um, enough to make it... Um, you know, worthwhile to have a second chamber, or do you think it just doesn't make too much of a difference uh, at this point? That's a that's an interesting question, Keith. Um, you know, I I've this that's been around. Those double chamber things have been around since you know I want to say the late '80s, early '90s. You know, maybe mid '90s. Um, I think it was MR. Um, yeah, M MR, uh, Marine, Marine Technical Concepts. I, yeah, I still, MTC I still, that came I up still with have that. that one. Yeah, yeah, they came up with that whole thing. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a nice way to use up all your CO2 and make sure you're getting enough. But I don't know too many tanks that are suffering. And when it comes to calcium and alkalinity, that you need to have two chambers. Um, I think the pH, uh, you know, the acidic nature of the water when it comes out is also good to make sure that the pH doesn't climb too high uh, because you can get those issues, uh, especially if you're using Kalkwasser. As we all know, especially with a tank that's very densely populated with corals and other photosynthetic organisms, that the pH is going to climb during the day. To the point where I remember Alf Nielsen actually had, you know, a CO2 controller where he was bubbling in CO2 to try and keep the pH below 8.4 because it was going too high. Um, on our tank, you know, it's interesting. When I uh, was, well, I was originally hired as a consultant before the 
Academy opened. So I worked for two years on the design of that system um, and then ended up working there um, a few years later. So they originally expect uh, expect out six Shuran calcium reactors from Germany. Um, and we had nothing but issues with those things, unfortunately. So we actually ended up taking them offline. And for, I think, about three years, we never had a calcium or alkalinity issue. It was always high. Hmm. And the Georgia Aquarium, who preceded us by a couple of years in opening their big coral tank, um, they had they ran into a wall after about two and a half years where all of a sudden the calcium alkalinity plummeted. Hmm. And the major difference between their exhibit and ours is that all their support structure for the rock and everything was fiberglass. Hmm. And all of ours is concrete. So all ours is backfilled cinder block concrete with a concrete skin that's textured on top. So our concrete tank was was leaching out calcium um, and alkalinity hmm. on its own. So we didn't need calcium reactors. <laughs> so at this point right now, we have two calcium reactors that were originally built for a tank uh, that was 20,000 gallons. That has no problem maintaining the calcium alkalinity in that big reef tank, uh, wow. mainly because of the amount of sheer amount of concrete that's in there. Well, that's a good tip. If anybody wants to, uh, you know, avoid having to get a calcium reactor or, or dose two parts, just make sure you have a lot of concrete in your uh, tank in terms of the base of the structure. Yeah. So we don't have, yeah, we don't have an issue with the pH climbing too high um, or getting too low because of the excess CO two. I think our our effluent from the two reactors, one reactor is right now running at a set point of 7.0, the other one's at 6.7. And so our combined effluent is like 6.8. If you had to like recommend to a hobbyist that, um, you know, is uh, trying to get to the next level in terms of keeping a reef tank, in terms of nutrient, nu nutrient control, right, in terms of nitrates and phosphates, you mentioned that you guys have used um, GFO. And, um, but another way to go is to use, um, you know, macro, like in a refugium or a, an algae reactor or, or, or turf scrubber. What, what, what would you, um, you know, what, what's your preference in terms of a home aquarium in, in terms of the, uh, nutrient control? Do you think it's okay to, to use the GFO release for the phosphates and a protein skimmer to, you know, for, for nitrates and phosphates, or do you think it's, um, you know, also a good option in terms of uh, using macro? I, I think there are many roads to success. And I think that you can do both of those things. I think they both have pros and they both have cons. Um, on the, you know, on the mechanical side of everything, I would say the pros are you have a little bit more control over it. So you can, you can, you can adjust how much GFO you put in there. You can, you monitor the phosphate levels, make sure they don't go too low or go too high. Um, there's issues with alkalinity. You can get depressed alkalinity when you use a lot of GFO. Um, I, I think that with uh, macroalgae, the danger there is that you can, you know, if you let it go unchecked, it could quickly strip out everything out of the water. And, you know, that was an issue many, many years ago. Um, some people might remember the, the Walter 80 algae scrubber, um, you know, debate back in the uh, early 90s when they're talking about their Smithsonian exhibit. Uh, and one of the problems that that tank had was they were actually, their algae scrubbers were too efficient and they weren't, you know, you have to be able to size them properly. What they were finding was that corals were losing tissue, they weren't doing well. But when they moved them off, off exhibit and started actually f actively target feeding them, they started to regrow tissue. And one of the theories that they had was that the algae scrubbers were too efficient. And so the corals weren't getting enough, you know, basic nitrogen and phosphorus to be able to, you know, grow tissue. 
So I think there's there's a danger with that. Um, and you know, the algae also releases a lot of exudates, which can affect the water color. Um, and there's also benefits. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that they they release things that are beneficial. So you know, I don't think there's a cut and dried answer unfortunately, to that question, Keith. I think many approaches work, and a lot of people like to combine different approaches. Um, we actually have, like our Twilight Zone tanks, we do have big containers of GFO and carbon, um, but we also have, um, we're going to start a, a ketomorph filter on a uh, on a 2,000-gallon tank system that we have uh, with gorgonians and things like that to try and see if we can manage the phosphate levels with that. What would be like the minimum amount of um, light in terms of the hours of uh, light you know, over a, uh, over ketomorpha, you know, let's, let's say, um, I mean, I have a, uh, an, an algae reactor going on, on, uh, one of my tanks right now. And I've got that on five hours of, uh, light opposite the display tank lights right now, because, you know, my, my nitrates and phosphates are very low and, you know, I think it is, it's, it is pulling out a lot. So I'm just trying to like minimize the, uh, the amount of time that the LEDs are on in that algae scrubber. I even know another uh, successful reef keeper who has a refugium that turns the lights off for several days during the week, and the, uh, the and the Cato still stays alive. What are your thoughts on that in terms of really dialing down that light cycle, or even going black for a couple of days during the week to kind of try to manage, you know, the amount that that uh, is pulling out? Yeah, I I think that's fine because, like I say, you, you need to be able to control it, and that's why you know that's one of the disadvantages of those of the algae. You need to know because it's first of all it's growing, so as it gets bigger, its nutrient uptake capability is going to increase exponentially. So you need to be able to adjust things. Now the other thing you can do is photo period is one way. The other way is intensity. So with the with the LEDs, you can turn down the intensity. Hmm. So it's like a volume button. You turn down the volume they're not going to suck up as many nutrients as quickly and not photosynthesize to the same degree. Um, you know, there is, I forget what the term is, but there is a photosynthetic maximum that they reach uh, above which no matter how much more light you give them, they're not going to photosynthesize. But, you know, if you could, you could probably find that out for ketomorpha, what it would be. I mean, just to do some on online research uh, for that. But there's also then a lower limit, you know, how little light do they need to still photosynthesize? Right. Um, and, and is there an exponential growth? in photosynthesis photosynthetic capability with increase in light intensity but i, I think it's you know again it goes to what, what's working for you and what's right and what are the animals telling you right right just first-hand experience to see what's happening with the tank um yeah I've, we've had a couple of questions about pests and managing pests how do you guys manage pests in your uh, large systems or even the smaller systems and, and one specific question was acro eating flatworms you've got eggs that can be very right. tough to uh eradicate well, of course, the, the stock answer is don't introduce them in the first place, yeah. right? So that's like quarantine your pace, your pieces and hold them separate from your main system so you don't get them in there in the first place. So, uh, you know, we, we dip everything that we get um, in Revive or um, uh, uh, what's it? Reef Primer uh, are two good products that we've used with good success. Um, but you know, they don't affect the eggs. So we have to visually inspect or we either, or we break them off the substrate that they're coming in and only introduce the coral itself. Uh, I know that we were early on, we were battling the cropper eating flatworms in our big reef. Uh, somehow they got in there hmm. and, uh, we would just go into the garden hose. We just take a page out of Joe Ayula's book, went in there with a garden hose and just sprayed them down with, with, uh, with dechlor water and oh, really? it knocks them off. 
yeah, it knocks them off the branches and the fish come and eat them all. Right. So once they're off the coral, the fish will eat them. Um, and then we, you know, I mentioned we had some issues. So during COVID, we got, sort of basically had a perfect storm. So we started a project where the dive deck, so all our access to the tank is is through this deck that goes one side of the tank. They uh, That deck had some issues with um, water getting through it, through the drains and leak, leaking into the concrete below and spalding the rebar. Mm. So they decided to rip all that up and they built these walls, which limited our access to it. And that was all starting up. Um, they dug it all out and then COVID hit in March of, you know, 20, uh, where are we now? 2020. Yeah. Yeah. 2020. <laughs> so, um, we really had limited access. We also did a big light change in January. And just after that, we started losing all our, um, echinopora to, um, paramecia. So basically not paramecia, but, uh, the, um, helicostoma. So that brown jelly mm. protozoans, and we actually had to pull it all out, and wow. we just were losing it all. So we took out sheets and sheets of it, and lost most of our of that. Interesting enough, it didn't affect euphilia, which is one of the ones that usually hits pretty hard. Yeah. Um, then we found that we were losing our montipora, and we found uh, montipora eating flatworms on there. So I've gone back, and I did. I knew that in Hawaii there's the uh, belted wrasse. Thalassoma duprii, which feeds on Fastella nudibranchs that feed on parietes coral. And they've used those in the past to control them in aquaculture situations and research situations. So I went online and looked, what's the closest living relative to that that species? Because we couldn't really put it in our tank because it's endemic to Hawaii. Hmm. And our tank is supposed to represent the Philippines. And it's a new different nudibranch that eats anyway. So I put in, um, uh, let's see, the canary wrasse. And, oh, no, Thalassoma, oh, which is it again? I forget. It's uh, the banana wrasse. So we put in a bunch of those, and uh, they may or may not be helping. I don't know. Uh, but we don't seem to have as much problem with the Montipra anymore, mainly because most of it died off. I mean, the more pieces that we put in are growing again um, without too much issue. Um, we've, got the, we've got eight, I think, seven of them in there, and one of them has turned into a super male. Oh, That's nice. kind of cool. Um, we also had issues with reef spiders, sea spiders, huh. big, bad infection of those. We've had those actually in a, in a, in a separate system that have just multiplied where we'd have to be dipping them in reef primer and we'd be getting hundreds off of them, off the corals. Um, and we found them in the main reef. So we're looking at adding more wrasses to help control those as well. Um, our diversity has dropped. We haven't added new fish to that tank in probably two years. So uh, it's time to um, start adding a few more fish again getting our numbers up, particularly in, in fish that, that are useful. So we do have six-line wrasse in there. We have uh, melanurus wrasses, um, but maybe just not enough. We don't have any leopard wrasses anymore. We're going to get some more of those. I love leopard wrasses. Um, get some more halicaris, that genus. Get some more, some more of those in there. So, yeah, that's that's basically what we do. And there are smaller tanks we use, um, you know, shrimp, the word mani for aptasia. Um, we use butterfly fish a lot. Um, in some of the smaller tanks for aptasia control. And then we manually inject, you know, with calcium hydroxide or calcium chloride or, or hydrochloric acid. Um, yeah. So let me uh, thank uh, Great Beer and Reef Paul for the uh, super chat. The comment is great guest knocking out for the night. Looking forward to rewatching this in the morning. Thanks again. So um, 
Speaking of pests, let me ask you in terms of problematic algae, how do you guys deal with like cyano or bryopsis or uh, dinoflagellates? Do you um, s still try to stick with natural means of eradication or do you use chemicals, you know, chemi-clean to uh, get rid of cyano? What are your thoughts on that? What do you guys uh, typically do? Well, cyano hasn't been very much of an issue in the smaller tanks. Um, you know, there it's just maintenance, and, and it's mainly, you know, I had a biologist uh, who's um, got some of my exhibits and uh, that he's managing, and we had some cyano issues in the tank, and he just basically started basting the rocks with a turkey baster every couple of days and getting out the detritus and cleaning all the detritus out, and now he doesn't have any more cyan. Hmm. So it's, you know, it's some of it's uh, some of the systems are old. they got a lot of detritus in them. They need to be, you know, basically stormed up. And get that out. Um, bryopsis, we don't have bryopsis issues. Um, I, the only real issue that we have with bryopsis is in one system. Um, it's a research system for a coral spawning lab. And so uh, that's been manual removal. We've tried rabbit fish. I think right now I've got, there's, we've gone through four different species. Um, Saganus doliatus seems to be the one that seems the most effective, but again, uh, you could probably get 10 of those of so that species, and maybe three of them might eat bryopsis. Um, we've tried emerald crabs. We've tried all kinds of things. Um, the only thing we haven't called tried yet is fluconazole mm. as a chemical treatment, yeah. but um, it's it's a research system, so there's a lot of hesitancy uh, by the, uh, the, the researcher that runs that system of using any kind of chemicals. Um, I will say that in the big reef tank, we had an outbreak of uh, like a cyanobacteria type uh, that grew started growing um, and covering the rocks and we were in there trying to manually siphon it out and it just because it was just too much and I actually sent some off to a researcher a colleague of mine at the University of Hawaii and they identified it as a type of sandal that thrives on iron and they find it around iron shipwrecks so I, uh, I had our water tested for iron and it was uh, 0.2 parts per million iron Normally, you want iron like 0 0.01 or less. Mm. And so just on a hunch, I say, can you filter that? Submicron filtered the water sample and tested again, which they did, and it came back to 0 0.01. Mm. And so what was happening was we had, at that time, we had two large canister filters. And by large, I mean they were probably six feet tall and two and a half feet wide with GFO in them. And what was happening was the, the because of the movement of the GFO in those reactors, we probably, in hindsight, we made them too wide. And so they didn't flow well, and there was a lot of grinding going on. And we could tell because the sock filters on the outlet were bright orange. And so the fines were getting into the tank and coating the substrate. And this is what the Santa was using. So we decided to try ChemiClean. So we worked with Jeff Turner, and he gave us... Uh, um, a good deal um, because we needed a lot of it. Yeah, I bet. And we uh, we turned. I think it was almost over two thousand dollars treatment, if I remember correctly. And this was maybe oh God. I want to say it was maybe seven years ago. I'd have to look. I think it was twenty fourteen. Turned off all the lights for three days. Turned off the ozone um, for three days, and we dosed the whole tank, and it, it got rid of it. Uh, we had a few coral losses. We, you know, we had a few losses that we right. you know, couldn't really, you know, pin on anything in particular. 
But uh, since then, knock on wood, we have not had it. Is is the concern that uh, when you add a chemical like that, that's uh, knocking out you know a certain type of bacteria, that you're going to upset the balance of the good bacteria that um, you want to keep yeah, established? That, that's, that's yeah, the that's concern. one of it. That's one of it. And also, you know, we're managed by you know an animal health department, hmm. and they're not going to let us put stuff in a tank unless they know what's in it. All right. Hmm. Right. So that's another you know obstacle to using some of these products. You need to know what's in them. Um, so yeah. And then that's the other concern is do you, and there's so much research coming out now. I just saw a paper on, there's a bacteria that live in, within, um, zooxanthellae. And so if you're using antibiotics or whatever, are you affecting those bacteria that are in the zooxanthellae and how does that affect coral bleaching and the susceptibilities of bleaching? Cause there's some, uh, evidence to suggest that these bacteria, you know, are releasing vitamins to the there's so many variables so many variables there's so much we don't know Keith. yeah That's the i bottom. guess so there's so much we don't know charles um i want to be respectful of your time there's a couple of questions that uh i want to throw sure. your way about another 15 minutes yeah that'd be great okay. um i want to thank don howard for the super chat he's got a couple of questions question number one is do you have any luck with the uh, marginalis butterflies eating pests marginalis butterflies oh i don't know if i pronounced that correctly yeah, I, I just trying to figure out which species, which one that is. Let me just uh, Google yeah. it here real quick. My memory's not. Oh, yeah, I've never had them. Okay. Okay, and never had. Them. We were looking at getting them, um, but because I think these ones are also in cooler water, and we were looking at them for control in some of our. Um, some of our temperate tanks, but no, we've never tried the marginalysis. I think we may have had one at one time, but not in the big tank. We do have copper bands in there and the copper bands are, are pretty good for us. We've, I've, we've had, um, uh, see the, um, we've had butterflies in the reef tank in the past. To, uh, the problem is the that they eventually go up. Yeah. But, if, you know, and also, um, Mahanos, Mahano oh, anemones yeah. have been a problem. Mm. Uh, ever since we used to have like a blue face, a uh, emperor angel, we had regal angels, all kinds of stuff. We didn't have much of a problem since we moved all those fish. They, the Mahanos have kind of taken over a little bit. So we've been having to nuke those. Um, uh, so we've had uh, in other tanks, we've had double saddles. We've had raccoons. Raccoons are great. Um, but the problem is that some of these tanks, you know, they, they'll pick at other corals, of course. Right. And in our in our ray lagoon, some of those butterflies like to pick at the eyes of the rays. Ooh. So the copper bands are usually the ones that we turn to the most. Gotcha. So Don's other question is, um, and this is getting to substrate, which we haven't talked about yet. What what are your thoughts on miracle mud? Uh, it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle that it works. No, uh, I I really I don't I have no thoughts on it because I've never used it. I tend to be fair. You know, Ling's a good friend of mine. Um, and so I know uh, people that swear by it. I know people that swear at it. So I, <laughs> I, I, I really have no, no, uh, comment on it because I've never used it. I've never run a system with it. Um, so, well, okay. Now that we're talking about substrate, what are you, what are your thoughts in terms of bare bottom versus a sand in a reef tank? Well, it's, it's the wheel of change, right? Mm. What's old is new again. And what is new is old again. Right. So we're, we went, we started off with bare bottoms and everybody wanted to have 
carpets of uh, brilliant green star polyp coating the bottom of their tanks because uh, it I looks love so cool. Green star polyp waving in the current, you know, like a lawn. Um, yeah. And then people, then we went. It, we went to the extreme opposite where people were putting 12 inches of sand in yeah. and having deep sand beds and people swearing by that. And, you know, and then we've had plenums, uh, you know, I, I did run a couple of plenum systems at Waikiki and for what I could tell they worked, they worked fine, but I didn't have them for like eight years. I had them for one. We Bruce Carlson, and I set up one of a tank for him down in the, on the exhibit floor. And we ran that for, uh maybe four years five years maybe six mm-hmm. um and that's the, yeah maybe five years and then that's the one where we had a drain in the bottom and i could take water from the bottom and i it's all it's in volume three i think the graphs are in there showing what we found and you know we always had very low nitrate and phosphate in there it, it worked great um as far as i could tell but uh yeah again it's it's what floats your boat and you know what what works makes the most sense i mean i know the people that use um you know bare bottoms because they want ultra low nutrients i mean there's something to be said if you're going to have a substrate some people want to maintain it uh, all our tanks have substrates in them um we've had ones that have solidified and had to be taken out and removed and redone we've had other ones that we just actively manage it by lightly you know siphoning out detritus or having animals in there to you know suspend that detritus um the reef tank has sand in it and this mixture of sand and crushed coral uh, in the shallow area, we're actually in the process of removing a lot of the crushed coral and putting more coral sand. Um, and I have an area with garden eels in the big tank that was four feet deep. Um, and when I we started filling that system in, we just said we can't put four feet of sand in there. So we added a bunch of large boulders that we had of coral rock. We put screening over that. We added crushed coral. We put another layer of screening. Then we put maybe a foot of sand at most for the garden eels. And over time, I'm sure that sand has worked its way through. So who knows what kind of, you know, wonderful, crazy chemistry is going down in these, these dank, dark areas. Right. You know, I have no idea. Um, Giancarlo Francisco, I'm sorry if I'm mis- mispronouncing that first uh, name. How does sand versus bare bottom tie into biodiversity, both macro and micro organisms? So I, maybe the um, the question is, there's been such a big, um, most people today start tanks with dry rock, right? And, and right. there's no biodiversity with dry rock. So you have to kind of uh, add in that biodiversity. And a lot of people also do bare bottom. So how, how do you get that necessary biodiversity if you're doing a, a dry rock only tan- tank with bare bottom? I mean, that's, um, that's a challenge. It's a challenge that people have. It's challenging. I mean, you, you have to buy those kits, right, where of amphipods and things like that. And the advantage of that, you know, the plus, looking on the bright side of it, is you can control what's going in there. So you have some control over the organisms that you're adding. And whereas when you had live rock, you didn't know what you were getting. Right. You know, it, you were getting all kinds of stuff that some of it was good and some maybe it wasn't so good. Um, but, you know, I remember, you know, Walter Eddy used to always champion his algae scrubber systems as being so diverse and you know, being able to measure the diversity of these microorganisms uh, in his systems and how it was so fantastic. And I said, well, the hobbyist systems might be just as diverse. We don't know because we don't have the resources of the Smithsonian Institution yeah. to, do, to analyze our systems to find out what's in there. But I, I'm sure it's lower than, than some of these systems. And definitely by having a, a sand bottom, you're... I mean, there are animals that live in those habitats only. You know, you're not going to find them in bare bottom tanks. 
because they live, they spend the majority of their life in these sandy areas. Um, so I, you know, I think that there, there's something to be said from that. And also with the plenum idea, when, when Jobert floated that, his whole thing was uh, seeding those, those gravel beds with um, certain microorganisms and macroorganisms that help to maintain those beds and keep them from clogging up with detritus, uh, to keep them functional, keeping the water be able to move through those, the porosity up. So, I mean, there's, you know, and then the, I guess the bottom line question is how much biodiversity do we need mm. in, in how much macro microorganisms do we need um, to make, to create a stable ecosystem? Um, you know, let's face it. These are, these are ecosystems that we are managing. Right. You know, yes. Whether we know it or not, yes. we're actively managing these systems and making changes. And we are, and we're, it's not a system that's just functioning on its own. We are making changes and having a direct input on it. Um, one, one more question I had about substrate. Do you actively siphon your uh, sand beds or do you just um, have a cleanup crew that does the yeoman share of that kind of work? We do a bit of both. Okay. Do a bit of both. Yeah, we do a bit of both. Um, and some systems, we don't have much cleanup crew in there. So they, a biologist will be actively siphoning. But, um, you know, when I had some smaller systems, when I first started there, I had a number of smaller tanks and I used to turn over that bottom and that detritus that would come out of there was pretty astounding. Uh, and definitely would help with maintaining uh, a better water quality by getting a lot of that detritus out of there. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, with cyanobacteria, um, you know, that detritus is a sink for phosphate. And a lot of times that cyano is growing on the bottom because it's basically liberating that phosphate out of the interstitial water and chemically liberating it from the detritus. They have enzymes that are designed to dissolve calcareous substrates to liberate the nutrients out of them. Gotcha. So, Charles, I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap it up. Um, my last question to you is: Is there a plan for Reef Aquarium Volume Four out there, or is um, is it three volumes and that's what we got, or are you possibly working on something else in terms of a new book? Uh, I, I I've got a project that I uh, told Julian I wanted to do uh, many years ago that I'd like to do. Um, the problem with books nowadays is that, you know, it, it's a lot of work to do it. And mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say that I'm trying to get rich off of this, but I do want to get some reward for my effort. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, books just don't sell as much or at all. And a lot of like, I know, um, I know Tony Vargas is coming out with a second volume, but, you know, I don't know what kind of volume, he's, you know, size he's printing, whether he's printing a thousand books or 7,000 or whatever it is. But, you know, to print small numbers of books is extremely expensive, yeah. you know, and you have to print large numbers to get, you know, a break on the pricing. And then you have to store those books till you can sell them. So it's, it's a risky proposition now for publishers, you know, unless you're J.K. Rowling, you know, you can't guarantee your books are going to sell. And my other pet peeve is, I mean, I can download all my books as PDFs. People just copy them and put them on the internet and share them amongst themselves. Mm, and right. there's even websites. There's a website, a guy in, uh, I think he's in, in Georgia or South Carolina has a website. All our books are like our chapters are as if he wrote, wrote them verbatim with the photos, everything just on his website. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just discouraging. Yeah. You know, why would I want to put all that work into it and then just to have somebody take it and put it on a website and right. call it their own, yeah. you know, because it, you know, let's face it, no one's going to sue anybody and it's just not worth it. So they know that. And, yeah. But I, I'd like, I'd love to do another book. I, I do have an idea for a book. 
I don't know that Julian's keen on doing another book. He's told me that if you want to write another book, go ahead. But I don't <laughs> think he's keen on doing it. It just for him, it's a business decision. You know, it's just an, an understandable one. It's hard to it's hard to sell books now in the hobby. Most people are getting all their information online now. Well, I'll tell you, you, you your books, uh, the uh, the three volumes, were just invaluable for me in terms of when I got started in the uh, in the hobby and just kind of brushing up every now and then on them. It's just great information. And like I said at the beginning of the show, I highly recommend you know anybody that hasn't um, picked up those books to uh, try to find a copy if they can of those um, that series. Just a lot of libraries have it too. Oh, okay. And you can find it on book resellers and places like that. But it, you know, the whole goal of writing those books was to disseminate that information. And I mean, when I first conceived of writing the book, you know, my concern was the few books that were out there that were in English were horrible. And, and some of them were just thinly disguised advertisement for a company's products. Mm. Um, and it was controlled by a very small publishing group. And so when Julian uh, partnered up with Two Little Fishies with uh, his partner, who was a graphic designer uh, for books, we said, hey, how about we do a book together? And, and you know, just, to, just to, first of all, to counteract a lot of the misinformation that was coming out in some of these other books and to put something out of quality that was unbiased. We weren't trying to sell a product to anybody. And I, you know, coming at that time, I was just finishing off my master's in zoology. And so I was of a, of a scientific mind in terms of finding references and not just spouting stuff out, but actually backing it up with scientific references. So that was really the germ of the idea. And then when we started writing it, it became apparent um, that it was going to be a huge book and it'd be so expensive that nobody would want to buy it. So we made the decision to split it into two volumes. And that's why there's a volume one and two. And then, you know, it was took many years to go then do to volume three. Right. And that one took a year and a half of just research and talking to people and researching literature to come up with that book. Um, the technology's changed a lot, but you know, a lot of it's still the same. And even the first, the first book, you know, it's was published in 1994. There's the biology doesn't change right. a lot. You know, I mean, there's right. new discoveries, but the basics are still the same. Same, so, same principles. Yeah. Yep. Same principles. So Charles, well, thanks for those kind words. Yeah. 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 So Charles, any, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Uh, just like to thank everybody and, you know, again, Marie Depot for sponsoring this and my support team at the Academy. Um, again, all the members of the Coral Reef team that helped manage that exhibit. It's a, it's a Herculean task to say the least. And all the people that have worked on that in the past, like Rich Ross and Matt Wondell, uh, again, that tank wouldn't be the way it is today without the, the input that those guys put into it. Um, and it was just a pleasure, uh, being here today and, and chatting with you, Keith and, uh, Again, if there's any other questions uh, that you want to forward to me later, I'm happy to answer those as well. Except for Alex. Alex always asks me questions. He doesn't get to answer them. <laughs> He's got a direct pipeline to you, I guess. He does. He does. So, um, Charles, yeah, listen, I really, again, appreciate you taking the time to be a guest. would love to have you on again in the future at some point down the road. I know I got a lot of uh, additional questions to ask you, but uh, we're going to let you go um, tonight. So that'll do it for this show, uh, folks. Again, thank you, Charles, for, for being a guest. I also want to thank our sponsor, Marine Depot, for supporting the show, and also to all of you folks out there watching. To um, I really, really appreciate tuning in and, and every week. So my next live stream is not going to be until Thursday, May 6th at 7 p.m., and I got David Hammontree scheduled to be on the show, who's the president and CEO of Reef to Reef. So that should be another great show. Anyway, until then... Be safe out there, and we'll see you next time.
Bye, everybody. Thanks for coming. See you later. Hopefully soon in person. <laughs> at a Mac